Um, well, there's this not, I don't think the faculty um, particularly doing anything. The community's doing stuff, which faculty belong to, um, obviously. But, uh, yeah, it's horrible. Um, okay. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's also there's not much more you can say about it, although you want to say more. Um, you can't. Um, you can repeat it, and that that's, you should, in a way, but, um, but yeah. All right, um, how are we doing with book three? Good. Good. We're done now? Yeah. Everyone. Really? So you're ready for your quiz? Okay. No. <laughs> no. She is, she is, she's such a knight for you guys. <laughs> She's your protector. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And More the like damsels the appreciate it. What? The damsels appreciate it. The damsels appreciate it. it. Good. Um, all right. Um, but we're certainly past the Garden of Adonis. Uh, are we to Malbecco? Um, the goats? Fun? Uh, is book three what you're expecting when you read book one? Is it? Are you liking it? Professor Campbell hates book three. She actually hates Spencer. Um, that is impossible to believe. She hugs the book. Yes. Oh my God. Seriously, that's impossible to believe. Um, did, have you actually heard her say that she hates Spencer? I don't. I, I've heard her say she dislikes Spencer. I'm not sure. I've heard her use the I've heard her H word. She hates but, Spencer. Sorry. I haven't heard her say she hates Spencer. But you've heard her. I haven't heard her say she dislikes Spencer. I've heard her express ex extreme dislike for Milton, but not Spencer. Uh, maybe she's just. But I think she likes Milton's work, but. But not him. Milton. Yeah. No one he's knows. He's a horrible person. You maybe, maybe not. That's not clear. Um, he's a person. Who you ask? Sorry. <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Well, it does depend on who you ask. Milton was involved in extraordinary polemics um, for all his life and came close to risked execution. Um, he was on one side of a very, very, very bitter um, political fight, and his enemies uh, trashed him personally in ways that those who believe what the, I mean what they said might be true might not um, those who believe what they said if, if you if on, on the account that his enemies give of him he's a horrible person um, on the account that his friends give of him but they, they may that those accounts may not be any more accurate either he's actually um, although a pretty severe person um, a figure of uh, great courage he's one of those this isn't any more, I think, a serious argument about Shakespeare, whether Shakespeare was a, um, a misogynist, uh, chauvinist jerk, or whether he was actually feminist. I think it's pretty clear that um, Shakespeare was, was um, pr a pretty good outlier on the side of, on the side of feminism. That is that given what everyone else was doing at the time, um, Shakespeare is um, pretty amazing in his preference for women to men um, as, um, as great characters. Um, it is an argument about Milton, but there is a strong argument to be made that Milton actually is a feminist. Um, I don't think Professor Campbell would um, agree, um, but I also think that uh, how you view Milton um, might be uh, determined by how you first, um, what you were first told about Milton, how you first um, 
came to him, uh, whether he came to him looking for evidence of his chauvinism, which there's plenty of, or whether you came to him looking for evidence of a countervailing tendency, which, in my opinion, there's more of. Um, but that's something we'll talk about in Paradise Lost. I mean, I think that one of the things about Paradise Lost, one of the things that Milton learned from Spencer, um, maybe we should just turn this into a question about Spencer. Uh, do you see in book three a kind of um, feminist impulse in Spencer? Um, I do. Uh, it's not uh, it's not the feminism I mean it's not like yes we must all be Spencerian in our view of, of gender politics um, there's a lot that was pretty progressive in, at the end of the 16th century that would look not so progressive now um, but um, still I think that the um, fact that book three begins with Britomart winning um, and that it continues with Britomart winning, and that Britomart has an extraordinary amount of agency, um, that, that that agency isn't... Um, uh, the, the, it, it's not that she has agency because she's um, a Madonna-type person, like Beatrice and Dante, um, but that she has agency while being a human being, um, that there almost is a Shakespearean quality to her as a character. Um, she's uh, smarter and deeper and, and um, more passionate than anyone else. Um, uh, she makes the men look stupid on the whole, um, including Artigal um, when you go um, um, beyond book three. Um, and, um, but it doesn't mean that she's always right. Um, but it does mean that stuff that she's wrong about um, she's wrong about within herself. It's it's she's she doesn't quite understand her own feelings. And one of the really interesting things about book three is the extent to which it's psychological. Um, in a way that you know we've been talking about psychology and Spencer from the start. Um, we've been talking about the psychology of pride and um, the ways in which. The things that that the knights have to deal with arise out of um, their psychological responses to their own histories and to the last thing that they've been dealing with. And we talked about this again. Um, uh, I think we'll keep recurring to the most beautiful parts of the Fairy Queen, which I think is is another way of talking about what a good poet Spencer is. That the most beautiful parts are also the most important parts. Um, that's not always true, that beauty and importance go together. Um, it's one very rarefied um, feature of great poets or great writers is that their control, you know, there are lots of almost great writers who have amazingly beautiful um, passages in their work. Um, perhaps as many beautiful passages as the great writers. I mean, this is all shorthand, but I think it's a helpful one. So there are lots of, of um, near great, or great but not um, world historical. You know, let's just make a distinction between great writers and then absolutely essential writers. And there are lots of great writers who have lots of beauty in their work. Again, that's a shorthand for you know, some kind of um, extraordinary, high qual memorable quality. There are lots of great writers who have lots of um, that kind of quality in their work. Um, but the difference between a great writer and an essential writer that way would be 
that the that an essential writer makes the part that's most important the most beautiful part the most quality part that is that there's the control of the work is so extraordinary that it's not accidental that some passages are more memorable than others what writers always do is try to write the best they can at every moment I mean what what real writers should always do is try to write the best they can at every moment but in great but not essential writers again to if that distinction means something it's that sometimes the subject lends itself to spectacular writing and sometimes it doesn't and when it doesn't you may have the part that contains the thematic center of a work or the thing that the writer is most concerned about communicating or whatever but it turns out that that's not the part of the work that you can be most intense about and other parts of the work you can be more intense about although if you took them out it wouldn't ruin the work very much um, in Spencer and Milton these are both questions and in both cases I want to answer that they are um, in control in this extraordinarily rare way they're in control of um, the memorable parts of their work that is they want certain parts to be memorable because their being memorable is part of the point and um, the way that works in Milton which is maybe a little bit easier or more straightforward to to um, uh, articulate the thesis that I'm that I'm offering here the way it works in Milton is it simply is the case that Satan's speeches are greater than God's speeches it's absolutely the case that the parts of Paradise Lost that um, people remember that haunt people that um, people are utterly struck by are not the parts where God is speaking and not so much the parts where the Son of God is speaking and not so much the parts where the angels are speaking but the parts where Satan is speaking we're gonna leave Adam and Eve out of this for a minute um, but it's Satan who has the great speeches hail horrors hail infernal world and thou profoundest hell receive thy new possessor um, Satan's great acceptance or affirmation of being in hell um, that you get in book one of Paradise Lost and so what some people will say of Paradise Lost is um, it's a problem with Paradise Lost of course it's a great poem but it shows you something about um, how poetry can be misleading that the greatest speeches come from Satan um, that is and um, then people will say and there are two possible there are two possible reasons for this one it's is that it's simply a problem that um, the expression of a of a kind of um, charismatic evil is always going to be poetically more interesting than the expression of good um, that good doesn't produce poetry it produces morality but evil produces poetry and so that there's something fundamentally misguided about trying to retell the biblical story in poetry because poetry will naturally fall on the side of charismatic evil rather than generous good 
And so some people say, you know, it's, of course it's a great poem in every way, but the poem, the very fact that it's a poem undercuts what Milton is trying to say in it. Um, that's kind of what Spencer is pretending to worry about in the letter to Raleigh. Um, I'm trying to write this great poem, but the fact that it's all um, false and gaudy and showy and um, all about adventures rather than about truth. I had a teacher in college who, who, had, a, who had an intense Belgian accent, so he would always say, truth. <laughs> um, I always remember this. Uh, that 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 it's about that it's about um, um, Arthurian legend rather than the truth. Um, that fact um, shows that that for on Milton's own showing, it's a mistake, an impossible mistake, to do what he wanted to do in a poem. Um, in a great poem, the greatness of the poem has to be different from the greatness of God. Um, that, so that's one. Um, so it is a great poem, but the greatness of the poem is different from the greatness of God. This is what Eliot said about Milton, that Milton, T.S. Eliot, who was not that good a person, um, <laughs> leave aside women and Jews, and maybe he was okay in various ways, but um, um, otherwise, you know. I can forgive him a lot because he wrote Cats, the book of practical cats. Yes. Uh, yeah, he was good He was good about cats. Old Wasim's book. Yes. If your last name was Cats, no. But if you were a cat, yes. Um, so, um, but what Eliot said about Milton is, Eliot believed himself to be a good person, um, as most people... Uh, most effective people in the world do. But what Eliot said about Milton is that Milton chose to be a great poet rather than a good poet. And that was the mistake that Milton made. Um, because good for Eliot also meant morally good. Um, to be a good poet partly meant not to insist on being the greatest poet, which was then arrogant. Um, uh, the sin of arrogance, uh, the sin of pride, um, goes with the aspiration to greatness. Whereas to be a good poet is to be is to be a poet for your readers rather than a poet for yourself. So Eliot explicitly said that Milton, um, uh, by choosing to be a great poet, um, was that was a step towards evil um, or towards siding with evil. C.S. Lewis, who very much admired Milton, um, but nevertheless very much hated Satan. Um, Try to try to split the difference by saying that Milt, what Milton was doing was showing you that your own attraction to Satan was a moral problem that you would have to cope with. So Lewis basically said, "Of course, evil is going to get the best speeches. That's what you have to recognize, and recognize therefore that the great speeches." are not the morally correct speeches. But both Eliot and Lewis will then agree that the greatest parts of the po poem as poetry are not the parts of the poem where Milton is saying um, what he wants us to believe. And whereas those who are satanic readers of Paradise Lost, and they tend to be the better readers, um, those who from Shelley to, from Blake to Shelley who both explicitly said that Satan was the hero of Paradise Lost and that, that um, he was a heroic hero, um, not just a technical hero, but, but he was and should have been the hero of Paradise Lost, um, through Harold Bloom and William Empson and others, 
Um, their view is the reason Satan's speeches are so great is because he is the um, bearer of the standard of freedom and that his speeches should be the greatest because he's there, because Milton is in control of um, where Paradise Lost is at its greatest. So the um, interesting thing then is that the Shelley-Blake view makes Paradise Lost a greater poem because a more integrated and more um, in control poem than the Lewis Elliott view does. Um, so bring this back to Spencer, um, it's again, I think, the case that you can see Spencer as um, certainly brings up the question about whether poetry is, is a good thing or a bad thing, relatively speaking. Um, so in the letter to Raleigh, poetry is a necessary um, uh, slackening from the um, um, complete commitment that moral philosophy and moral exhortation would give you that a cloudy allegory and wrapped in cloudy allegories and so on. You have to do it, but you have to do it because you have to address human beings who are weak and who just won't pay attention if you simply tell them you must be good, you must be holy, you must be chaste, and so on. Um, humans don't take that in, but um, allegory therefore is a concession to human weakness, and that concession would then mean that poetry is sugar rather than the pill that the sugar coats. But the pill is the important part. Po and sugar isn't good for you, rots your teeth, bad for your pancreas, um, bad in various other ways. Sugar isn't good for you, but um, if it gets you, you know, if, if uh, Special K also gets you your vitamins in the morning. The fact that it's got corn syrup in it, um, is, uh, it does more good than harm to have the corn syrup, even though the corn syrup itself is bad for you. Um, and that's what Spencer is saying in the letter to Raleigh. And then the idea would be that it's not surprising that the most beautiful passages in The Fairy Queen are also the passages that you, must be, that you should be most suspicious of because the beauty is the corn syrup in The Fairy Queen. So if despair has the most beautiful poetry in book one, um, that's kind of a warning that beautiful poetry by itself will make you melancholy and perhaps cause you to despair. Um, if, the, if mirth and then uh, the lovely lay and the bower of bliss have the most beautiful poetry in book two, that's um, a warning, again, that poetry by itself you have to be very careful about because it may get you to slacken in your moral duty in order simply to, um, to, to, to wallow in the beauty of poetry. We can say that there's a sense in which book three raises this issue appropriately and at the right time. I'm now giving, I'm still giving you this version of the Fairy Queen that I don't believe, but I just want to show you what that argument is. Um, that book three raises that issue at the right time, 
Because now, just to put book three in a kind of context, what chastity has to learn. So let's say that holiness had to learn something in book one, which is something like its predisposition to pride, um, which is the error of book one. Guyon had to learn something in book two, which was his predisposition to enjoying temptation. Not enjoying succumbing to temptation, but enjoying temptation itself. Um, and he had to learn that um, that wasn't temperance. What that actually was um, was a kind of composition of forces, as we say in, um, in um, talking about vectors. Um, and that the composition of forces is, I really want that, but I really want not, want not to have that, and the resultant of that is, I don't have it. But it's not not being tempted and not taking it. It's um, using all his energy to resist a temptation that he spends a lot of time evoking in himself. Um, and the Guyon has to learn not to feel that way. And if you make this argument, um, what you could say, if you want to say he did learn it, the way he learned it was not by going to the Bower of Bliss and just circling it and circling it and leaving it alone, but by destroying the temptation. He simply destroyed the Bower of Bliss, which is different from enjoying his own resistance to the temptation. And that might be an explanation of why the destruction of the Bower of Bliss is a successful outcome for Guyon after the mistakes that he makes, the errors that he makes in the first, um, whatever, 11 cantos of book two, just as defeating the dragon is a successful outcome for Red Cross after the mistakes he makes um, in the first 11 cantos of book one. And now we can say, okay, now here's another knight making another mistake. And we see immediately that Guyon, this is what we talked about the other day, that Guyon is to Britomart what error was to Red Cross. Um, first confrontation, and that first confrontation is one which Britomart wins, but doesn't win. This is still not the view that I hold, but it's the view, I think, that provides a kind of framework for Spencer to say, that's not going to work in the end, or you're finally not going to, you're, you're going to decide not to read it this way, but you can certainly try to read it this way. And some of it is certainly true, it's just the use that he puts to it that's in question. So let's now say that Britomart, chastity defeats temperance. And so the first issue that this brings up is, can the virtues be harmonized? I've mentioned this before, but that's an Aristotle, Aristotle actually asked that question. Can there, there are a whole lot of things that we think of as virtue. Can they coexist, all those virtues? Can you be, let's say, that courage is a virtue and prudence is a virtue? Can you be, both be courageous and prudent without being bold Sir Robin? Bravely, he beat a bold retreat. So he prudently, he was, he was, he was a brave coward, um, is the Monty Python joke. Um, but can you... Um, combine the virtues of prudence and courage? Can you combine the virtues of um, generosity and providence? 
That is, you know, what the ant is so good at that the grasshopper isn't, is storing stuff for the future. But of course, when the grasshopper asks the ant for help, the ant simply delivers the moral of the story, which is, you blew it. This isn't a socialist insect world that we're living in. Um, so again, the question is, um, can generosity, which is clearly a virtue, and, pro and providing for yourself, you know, make it, uh, keeping things in reserve, can those two things harmonize? This is a very old moral question. It's also a political question. You know, there's the virtue of freedom, um, so everyone should be able to own guns, and then there's the virtue of, um, of universal um, health care, which is that people should be protected from um, an overly violent world, let's say. I mean, I'm, obviously I'm concatenating things, but it shows why both sides in most political debates believe that their own views are virtuous, and the answer is they are. Every side in, a ser in an impassioned political debate, in an impassioned political debate, is acting out of virtue. The problem is the other side is also acting out of virtue, and, those, and the virtues of those two sides sometimes will seem irreconcilable. So you want freedom, let's say, but you also want um, the, the sick and the poor um, not to simply be left to die. And um, how you manage to reconcile those two competing demands is where political um, uh, animus comes in, and each side thinks the other side um, is somehow just either clueless or selfish, um, or some combination of clueless and selfish. And, um, and then you try and, and um, reconcile the two in a bipartisan manner, and everyone thinks you're a total wimp and they don't know why they voted for you. Um, and so, you know, these are, these are real issues. They're, they're huge issues. They're huge issues in any political context. Spencer is writing in a political context. Milton is writing in a political context. And um, so now what you have is what seems to be the first time book two flirted with this, but then said, no, holiness and, and temperance can coexist. Um, it's part of magnificence to be holy but temperate. Um, to, to measure twice before you cut once. The holy knight cuts, but the temperate knight measures twice. You know that's a carpenter's adage, um, right? Measure twice, cut once, because once you cut, you're done. Um, so, so it looks like the beginning of book two is a story about how there are ways, if you're smart enough, to harmonize the virtues. Um, temperance is always going to be the hardest one or the first one that it's hard to harmonize the other virtues with because the other <coughs> virtues are about really committing yourself to something. And temperance is about committing yourself to it but not fanatically. And that there's always going to be a possible tension there. But then, we, then Spencer solves that tension. Guyon is about to fight Red Cross. Red Cross is about to fight Guyon. But then they figure it out. It turns out there is a plan <coughs> that works for both of them, um, that allows both virtues um, full play. But then chastity is next. And we will now say that the error Britomart makes is an error which Spencer has political reasons for um, asserting. The error is to believe that chastity and virginity are the same thing. 
and that is an error which Spencer sees as endemic, and Protestantism sees as endemic to Catholicism. St. Paul seems to have said that Catholic priests and virtuous Catholic men, whose virtue will be sufficient to make them priests, um, should be virgins. Now, that quickly becomes untenable because some of the great church fathers were not virgins, but once they became priests, they um, insisted on absolute lack of sexual contact. Um, Augustine is the greatest example of this. Um, Augustine had more sex than anyone you've ever met before he converted, um, but at, at which point he stopped having sex. Um, but the... Um, point is that the Catholic doctrine is that sex is sin. All sex is sin. Any sex is sin. Augustine said this. Original sin comes from the fact that we, were, that we are all the creations of sex. That you are born in sin because you were conceived in sin because the way you were conceived was through a sinful sexual act, was through a sexual act which is therefore sinful. And the Protestant, one of the Protestant um, protests against Catholicism was a protest against what, what they regarded as a fanatical view of chastity, where chastity meant virginity. Yeah. Uh, just a question about, um, about Eden and, and sex in Eden. Uh, so Catholicism believes that there was no sex before the fall. Right. right? So if that's the case, I'm, I've been wondering how, uh, how do they justify the need for a human race, assuming that Adam and Eve would have to procreate? Or yeah, it's a good question, and I don't actually know the the um, what would be called the. Um, what do they call it? The the hypothetical history. They do this in history books all the time. Also, you know, what if, um, what if Roosevelt had had learned about the bombing of Pearl Harbor and had protected Pearl Harbor? How would the future have changed? Um, what if um, Hitler had won the Battle of Stalingrad? How would the future have changed? Um, conjectural history. So I don't know. Actually, I'm sure there is, but I don't know what the Catholic conjectural history of humanity would be if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit. Um, I think that some people solve this by saying God knew they would eat the fruit so he didn't have to have a plan B. Um, and some people um, might say that God would just continue creating people the way he created angels. Um, but I do, but I don't know that there is much. Um, it's, it's worth looking, looking up maybe and I'll try if I get a chance. Um, but I don't know that there is much about what the plan B would be if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit. In Milton, sex in Eden is fine. That is, sex is not, you know, sex is, sex is a hippie, I think it's a very healthy thing when two people love each other and get married and have sex. Um, and Milton is absolutely clear on that, that, that Adam and Eve are having sex before they fall, and that they're having sex in order to procreate. And not only is he clear that they're having sex, he's clear that the angels are having sex. Um, that sex equals love before the fall. All sex is love, and all love is sex. Is that, uh, yes. Kind, no, it's it's not. 
the difference between them is such that it's uh, that that's kind of true, um, and um, so that the important thing to see is that that's a Protestant idea, and it comes out in the fact, as you know, that Protestant priests can marry. That if you are a priest in the Church of England, um, more likely than not, you're married. If you are an Episcopalian priest now, you may be married to a same-sex partner. Um, but marriage is not, um, uh, is not incompatible with priesthood in Protestant doctrine. And it is incompatible, although still being argued now um, because of various scandals, but it's still incompatible with priesthood in the Catholic Church. So Britomart starts out, even though she's a woman and therefore can't be a priest, um, that um, women priests even in Protestantism are a late 20th century phenomenon. Um, so even though she's a woman and can't be a priest, she starts out with a Catholic view of chastity as virginity. And the Protestant view is that chastity is actually um, best exemplified in marriage rather than in virginity. That what chastity means is faithfulness to your spouse. Um, so ch there is a temperate version of chastity. And that temperate version of chastity is marriage. So, of course, the first thing that happens is not marriage, but conflict. And um, the, and what's Britomart's first meeting with Artigal? The symbolic loss of virginity by sight. Yeah, that's the first sight of, um, of Artigal. Um, when are they first in each other's presence? Do you guys know yet? Okay. Um, so when you get there, you will see. Um, the idea, though, is that conflict and refusal of marriage is an um, intemperate view of chastity. And of course, this all goes to Queen Elizabeth, who people were still in the 1580s hoping that she would marry. Um, because if she were to marry, there would be some chance, not of her maybe having a child anymore by the time you got to around 1589 or 90, but a chance that her husband would then become king, um, and that there would be another, that there would be a line of, um, of, uh, when Merlin says, yet the end is not, um, that that would be true that there would be, um, that the next ruler of England would be directly associated with Elizabeth by being a virgin queen. So do people know about the cult of the virgin? That Elizabeth, as, as uh, I think it was Joan Rivers said of Debbie Reynolds, I knew her before she was a virgin, um, that Elizabeth also, once, once she became queen, she decided to be a virgin. Um, and uh, that was partly because she really, really, really had to put an end to um, violent, bloody civil um, wars or skirmishes between Catholics and Protestants in her kingdom. England had, had been whipsawed back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism. It would continue to oscillate between those two possible futures for another hundred years until 1688. 
um, but had been whipsawed back and forth, where people who were running one government were being executed by the next government because of their religion, being burnt at the stake because of the next by the next government because of their religion. Um, and this all was based on um, a king or a queen dying. Um, so then the next in line for the throne would come into power, and the people who were running things previously were now being burnt. Um, so it was hard to convince people that government work had a future. Um, <coughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's as though Karl Rove were running the universe. Um, but then, um, um, or Ram Emanuel, I can be equal opportunity. I, I don't want you to guess my politics. I'm sure you can't. Um, uh, the, um, um, so Elizabeth really wanted this to stop. And the brilliant way that she um, represented herself to the kingdom was essentially as their virgin mother. And so she used a Catholic, uh, a, a strongly Catholic idea, which is the call to the Virgin Mary. There's no such cult in Protestantism. No, Protestants do not think of the Virgin Mary as of particular importance um, to them, to them personally. Um, there's no prayers to the Blessed Virgin. Um, there's no sense of the Virgin Mary as, as, um, as the intercessor for them. And she's not eternally virgin. Yeah, and she's not eternally virgin. She has a kid, then she has other kids um, by more conventional means. Um, so um, what Elizabeth did was essentially said, look, she's great. I'm, the, I'm her fulfillment in a way. There's a technical term for this, which is, which is anti-type. Um, and that's a big part of Protestant theory, that there are types and anti-types. Um, but I'm, uh, we won't go down that road. Uh, we may a little bit when we talk about Milton, but we won't go down it now. Um, but the point is, she said, um, worship me the way you worshipped her. And she didn't say, worship me. But she, what she did was she showed extraordinary interest in her people, and she kept saying that interest precludes her being interested in her own personal life. Her personal life didn't count when she had to take care of her people, and therefore, she was going to remain a virgin, and states in North America were going to be named after her, namely Virginia. Um, and um, her virginity, which you can see is all over in Spencer, her virginity was going to count um, as a sign of her love for her people and her commitment for, to her people and the purity of her leadership and so on, and all of that was, go was going to be a kind of image-making that associated her with the Catholic cult of the Virgin Mary so that um, she could take some of that energy and some of that devotion, could redirect it to herself. So it's like now when people put on the mantle of Reaganism. You know, who's the new Reagan? Everyone loved Reagan. I actually didn't, but um, I shouldn't say so. Um, everyone loved Reagan, and now um, uh, you know people like Obama will say I'm really like Reagan, and people like 
um, um, Huckabee and Sarah Palin will claim to be really like Reagan. And Reagan himself, 30 years ago, was saying, I'm really like Roosevelt. I'm really like FDR. So there, you take some figure from the past who, um, who is idolized in some way, and then you try to present yourself as the contemporary version of that figure. That's what Elizabeth did with respect to the Virgin Mary. Um, but by 1589, the problems of this, Elizabeth had now been queen for 31 years, and the problem of her virginity was uh, becoming more prominent than the usefulness of her virginity. The problem, again, being that who was going to rule England next? And especially if she didn't get married, who was going to rule England next? And as you will see in Book 5, um, someone gets executed in Book 5. Gloriana, regretfully and sobbingly, like the walrus and the carpenters, uh, the walrus and the carpenter and um, Lewis Carroll, remember how they weep as they eat the oysters who go walking with them? I'm so sorry to be eating you, um, with they say. and sobs, they sorted, of those, they sorted out those of the largest size. Yes, good. Holding <laughs> his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Exactly. Oh, Do you all know this? The walrus and the carpenter? It's totally great. It's... It's an explanation of all politics in, in, uh, in 40 lines. Um, so um, in the same way, Elizabeth very unhappily, um, in this case she's known as Mercilla, um, she mercifully um, but regretfully has to execute um, Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and then... Uh, that gets published in 1599, and Spencer dies. Um, and then what happens four years later? But Mary's son becomes king of England. And that's kind of a shocker in history, um, that who turned out to win that one was not Elizabeth, but Mary, um, at the cost of her head, but still. Um, it's James I, Mary's son, who becomes king of England. Um, so, and that was the problem of who, who came next that people were already foreseeing in the 1580s. In 1601, um, there was a rebellion against Elizabeth, which failed, um, but a rebellion for just this reason, the, what's called the Essex Rebellion, um, for just this reason. So it's all an issue. Um, however, the answer then, you could say in book three, is um, a temperate version of chastity. What's the temperate version of chastity? Sex within marriage. That's the temperate version of chastity. Now, um, what this was all about, we didn't actually get to the Garden of Adonis, but we'll talk about this after break, where you'll be all caught up and ready for a quiz, and you'll also have started book four, which will be helpful for our talk about book three. Um, but what this all, here's how it, it plays out psychologically, which is we were looking at a kind of general psychology of certain human um, characteristics when we were talking about books one and book two. That is that holiness in general can start looking prideful. And you only have to look at the head of any religion to see how true that is. Um, you know, the reason everyone loves the Dalai Lama is he seems to be the exception that proves that rule. Um, when was the last time you saw a humble pope? Maybe Pope John. Um, in the 1960s. When was the last time you saw a humble chief rabbi or a humble rebbe? Sometimes they talk as though they're humble, 
Um, when was the last time you saw a humble Archbishop of Canterbury? When was the last time you saw a humble Ayatollah? Um, it's, if you're the head of a religion, you know, you actually kind of have good reason to think that you've done pretty well um, and that people should be listening to you and you also have to make tough decisions. So you're holy but prideful. Um, that's, what, that's what heading a religion does to you. Um, it's, it, how could it not? But that's a general characteristic. Temperance and the idea that, as I keep saying, that temperance has an anorectic streak in it, um, if, it's, if it's a major virtue, fanatical temperance is a kind of anorectic streak, again, that's a thing that you could say about a human quality or characteristic. It's a psychological comment, but it's a psychological comment um, about a certain character type. When you get to Britomart, we are really looking at the psychology of a character, namely the character Britomart. She's wounded. She likes being wounded. She feeds her wound. Um, she does some of the stuff that, that Guyon does, which is to enjoy her own temptation, um, as Slavo Zizek, um, who I really don't like very much, but um, he has a good title, Enjoy Your Symptom. Um, that's what Britta Mart does, is she enjoys her symptoms. Um, and everyone knows what that's like. Um, but it's also the case, as you will see with respect to Amaret, that, that what chastity can look like is sexual fear. Or one component of chastity can be sexual fear. So as you read about the House of Buserain, Remember that the house that what book three was supposed to be about was Scudamore saving Amaret, and Scudamore fails to save Amaret. So it's the first real failure in the Fairy Queen of the of the official knight of a book. Scudamore's supposed to save Amaret, he fails to. What so so at think about the House of Buserain. This will also happen as you start book four. There'll be more light shed on this. But think about the House of Buserain as for Amaret and Scudamore. That is, that that's an allegory partly for Britomart, who's, who's in the same boat with them in a lot of ways, as she's in the same boat with Florimel and Marinel. Uh, Marinel is avoiding women. Florimel is trying to find Marinel because um, she knows she's supposed to marry him. Um, so there's fear of sexual contact. That is, that's the through line in book three of the Fairy Queen, fear of sexual contact, think about how, why that would give rise to the House of Buserain. And the best way, I think, to think about this is to think about, okay, let me just say this in general, that under this, all this stuff about who is this for and, who it, and what is it in itself, the for question of any allegory is to, you, can, you can ask that question by saying, if this character we're dreaming this, what would be the meaning of the dream? And you can ask that about several characters, but for the House of Buserain, you can ask, if Scudamore were dreaming this, what would be the meaning of the dream? If Amaret is dreaming this, what is the meaning of the dream? If Britomart is dreaming it, what is the meaning of the dream? So it's always useful in Spencer, this is now the general rule, that, if you, that when you're looking at an allegorical moment or at any adventure, take the people who are present at that adventure and ask of each one in turn if they were dreaming it, 
what would it mean? If they were the one dreaming it, what would it mean? And Spencer can telescope a whole lot of different ideas together by having the same set of things happen in separate dreams. It's kind of like this is, really, this is where Inception comes from. Um, and of course, Inception is what um, the Garden of Adonis is all about. Um, but the Garden of Adonis is really way pro-sex and pro-reproduction. All right, have a good break. Um, and be ready for a quiz. So what do you mean by anorectic? Um, same root as anorectic. Anorexia, yeah. It's the adjective from anorectic. So the anorectic, one anorectic type, it's not the anorectic type. There's no such thing, but one anorectic type um, enjoys, takes pleasure, actual pleasure in starvation. That is, there are two ways you could, you could um, 